In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and today I'm recording from Dusseldorf, back in Dusseldorf on this rainy, not very sunny day out. Um, so good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be listening from today, and welcome back to our returning listeners. And if you are new, let me tell you a little bit about what this series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as e-commerce and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance, generational management, and business values that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please download this series on iTunes. In this series, you can listen to great advice, leadership success stories that you can learn from, stories that motivate you, stimulate new ideas, and possibly even be the key to your future. I invite you to connect with me, send me your thoughts and insights to Leadership Beyond borders at gmail.com. Connect with me on my website, Leadership Beyond Borders. Tell me what you want to hear about. I'd love to get a mail from you, so please drop me one. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you are a professional, a business person with a passion or an expert in a business subject, reach out to me at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. We do have a worldwide audience. And even if you don't want to be a guest, and if you are in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we will make sure that you take away something useful for yourself or your business. Now, when I was preparing for today's broadcast, I was thinking about things. And in the last 15 to 20 years, I mean, we've been introduced to the World Wide Web, cell phones, Google, Facebook, tweeting, online influencers, emailing, online shopping, internet gambling, texting, messaging, chat rooms, and much more. I mean, everything has a technical touch point today. And if I'm honest about this, I don't think about this. I don't know if you do. But all this technology has come to me so fast and furiously that I haven't really had time to think about my relationships with others or my how my environment has changed with all this technology. I don't think about how this stuff really shapes my identity. But if I begin to think about it and try to understand the behaviors I engage in, I know I do have a digital self, but I always question, are my needs seeking out technology or is technology actually helping me create new needs? I honestly don't know. In such a short span of time, I've created new habits, like if my phone chirps with a message, I have to respond. I'm also responding to brands and advertising differently, differently than I did before. I've changed my consumer behavior. I compare more. I look for more possibilities, and I react differently to advertising in my environment. But most of this always happens without me being consciously aware of what I'm doing. And this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about these kind of shifts that are happening all around us and what that's doing to our behaviors in this changing world. 
Now, I haven't thought about this at all, but my expert today has thought about this a really lot. And I'm so happy to have on the show today Thomas Kolopoulos, who is the chairman of the based global innovation think tank, Delphi Group, which was named as one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. magazine. Tom is also the author of 11 books, a columnist for Inc.com, an adjunct professor at Boston University Graduate School of Management, an executive in residency at Bentley University, a past executive director at Babson College Center for Business Innovation, and a past executive director of the Dell Innovation Lab. Joff James of CBS Interactive Media called Tom one of the truly deep thinkers in the arena of technology and culture. Forbes.com named Tom as one of its business visionaries with an incisive view of world trade. Tom's 11 books include his most recent one, Revealing the Invisible, which is available on Amazon along with his other books. Tom Peters called his writing a brilliant vision of where we must take our enterprises to survive and thrive. And according to the late Peter Drucker, Tom's writing makes you question not only the way you run your business, but also the way you run yourself. So, Tom, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to be with me today. Kimberly, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you so much for pronouncing my name so incredibly well. <laughs> okay. It's only because I live on the other side of the pond. So. I, I understand. <laughs> so, um, Tom, let's just start. You have 11 books, but you, this new one um, that you just wrote is is something I've read it, you know, revealing the invisible. Um what made you? What moved you to to write this book? And maybe tell our listeners just a, a little bit about this before I go into more detailed questions. <laughs> no, that's a great way to start because with each book, there's always some sort of a, a trigger, this seminal event that causes you to to finally sort of crystallize your your thoughts, uh, and it turns eventually into into a book. The, the the seminal event for me here was this this general sense of uncertainty and distrust that we have in the world today. So here in the U.S., we talk about fake news. There's tremendous dissatisfaction around the world. Brexit, I think, is symptomatic of that dissatisfaction. And in many ways, I think we're coming to the end of a very long, uh, very productive, prosperous era, this era of the Industrial Revolution, which started a few hundred years ago. So we're entering a new era uh, where the old tools are simply no longer working for us, the social, political, economic tools. Uh, industrial tools are no longer scaling to meet the demands of an ever more demanding and and increasing uh, population. So we're heading towards 10 billion people. And the question I had was, how will we sustain a society and a planet with 10 billion people? And that really was the the impetus for uh, for writing the book, because whether it's climate change or or healthcare or education or an aging population, all of these are problems that we simply will not be able to solve with the same tools that we've used for the last few hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that that was something that came clearly through to me when I read the book. And and can you talk to our listeners a little bit about, about why you say that? Okay, why you, things are shifting and we can't solve the issues we did right. uh, like the way it did in the past. How, why not? Well, and what's shifting? Look, let's let's use some examples because it's always good okay. to to ground yep. this stuff, right? So let's talk about transportation or, or healthcare, education. Today we have one billion vehicles on the planet. And we have seven billion people. Yet three billion. 
people don't have access to reliable transportation. If we try to scale that 1 billion to 3 or 4 billion vehicles, we will destroy our planet and our ecosystem. We just cannot support that. We can barely support 1 billion vehicles. Already, uh, vehicles are the single greatest contributor to the carbon uh, emissions uh, globally. So, so there's an example of how we simply cannot do that. Now, amazingly, and we point this out in the book, amazingly, we will end up by 2050 not with three or four or five times as many vehicles, but 10% as many because of the application of AI and autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles or self-driving cars. So there's a great example of how we simply cannot sustain the industrial model of manufacturing and scaling to meet the demands of 10 billion people. In healthcare, it would take, according to the UN, it would take 300 years to educate enough doctors to deliver adequate health care to the 7 billion people we have today. We can't do that because in 300 years we'll have 10, 11, 12 billion people. So once again, the old tools by which we would scale uh, organizations and institutions are just starting to come apart at the seams. We have to find more intelligent ways to approach these problems. Mm-hmm. In your in your book, um, in the beginning of your book, you also you you approach this and you talk a, a little bit about you make a reference to a couple of these shifts and you make one reference you made a reference to um, the predictive behavior using an example of razor blades and then in another place you talk about um, the clock and cloud problems. Okay, yes. so why are these examples so important? And could you maybe share some with our listeners? Well, let's talk about each of them because the, the, they're both yeah. fascinating. The, the razor yeah. blades example is something most of us have been exposed to in one form or another. We've heard the term, uh, you know, if people buy the buy the razor, then they will forever buy the blades. So this notion of the razor and the blades is a, a colloquial expression that we use, and often we don't know where it came from. Uh, in 1895, a fellow by the name of King Gillette, and that really was his first name, King. Um, <laughs> who names their kid King, right? Uh, loft, lofty ambitions, obviously, on the part of his parents. But he actually he actually <laughs> rose to, uh, to to hurdle those ambitions because he's the one that introduced the original uh, uh, razor blade that was uh, used in World War One extensively. And when the soldiers came back with these razors, the handles is what I'm calling the, the razor, mm-hmm. uh, they would come back with a few blades. Now, obviously, in about a month's time, those blades would be used and they would need new blades. So the Gillette razor became very popular as a result of uh, folks having all these razors they had brought back with them and then having to buy blades for the razor. Now there's a lot of a lot of debate around whether Gillette actually planned it this way or whether it just happened, but the reality is that this has become a model for almost all of industry. We use it today with inkjet printers, right? You buy the printer right. and you will spend enormous amounts of money many times the cost of the printer on the, uh, the the cartridges. We've seen it with uh, with video games and game consoles and game cartridges. So n- this has been a model that's been replicated over and over again. Well, back in the late 90s, uh, around the, the, uh, the year 2000, the dot-coms, as, as they came to be called, uh, decided to do the same thing. Uh, but for them, the Razor was the platform, the internet. And they would use the Razor to effectively sell the blades. And the blades mm-hmm. would be these applications that they, would, that they would develop and that we would buy. They realized fairly quickly that that model wasn't going to work on the, on the internet. That it wasn't clear what the blades really were. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? You and I have become the blades. We are the product. We are uh, what has value to Facebook because it is what all the advertisers who advertise on Facebook really want. They want to have access to us. We became the blades. So it's a fascinating way to look at how we've commoditized this notion of behavior. My behavior, your behavior has become the product. It is the essential commodity 
uh, going forward into, into the 21st century. So we, we bring up that example to, to show how this, uh, this notion of having a commodity of value can apply to products as well as it can to people and to behaviors. It's a fascinating way to look at how we're monetizing uh, this new asset of, of behavior. Um, it's interesting, right? Because when, when you think about it, uh, the dot-coms took about 10 years or so to figure this out. Uh, it didn't happen overnight. Initially, they just wanted to have large communities of users, but they realized having scale of community wasn't enough. They really had to understand every person at a very individualized level, which is why Facebook uh, obsesses over uh, this notion of owning your digital self, your your behaviors. Uh, I, the clocks and clouds is, is a longer story. We can come back to that after the, uh, the break in, in the next segment, if, if you'd like. But that also talks to how we are, I think, changing the way we think about the fundamental way in which we approach problem solving. Mm-hmm. And and just to to yeah, I'd like to come back to that example after the break. But just to the to the to the um, dot com area, we we kind of got it wrong then because we're just thinking get eyeballs on there, and once we get the eyeballs on the net, then things are going to happen. But it's not about the eyeballs; it's about the behavior. Okay, it's, and that's it's what exactly yeah. exactly the individual's yeah. behavior, the not the behavior of a market, but the behavior right. of an individual. Yeah, and that's and and as you put in your book, that's where we shift because when we used to do studies, uh, we used to look at large groups of markets and and try to figure out how they're you know the Nielsen and everything. But now it's really about me, Kimberly, and what I do. Okay, you know I'm not part of this big cluster group anymore. Is exactly. that how you see? Yeah. Well, it, it, that's exactly right, Kimberly. And and you will judge every vendor and every product by how well they really know you, not in a creepy way, but in a very mm-hmm. positive way. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, we're going to come back to that. Um, Tom, we're going to take a, a short break now. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about our digital selves and this behavior and um, and maybe a little bit of that story on the clock and cloud because I thought found that fascinating. But uh, for our listeners now, we are talking to Thomas Kulopoulos, who is the chairman of the Boston-based global innovation tank Delphi Group, which was named one of the fastest-growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine. Now, Thomas is also an author of 11 books, and his most recent book, what we're talking about today, is Revealing the Invisible. Um, I can also recommend Generation Z, which I've also read, and um, a few of your others. And our listeners, if you want to reach out to Thomas, please reach out to him over his website, tkspeaks.com and on social media he's under at tkspeaks and he's loved to hear from you because he also does speaking and motivational and lectures so please reach out to him and I'm Kimberly Lewis your leadership trainer and business expert you can contact me with questions and comments at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com or join our LinkedIn group at leadershipbeyondborders or go to my website leadershipbeyondborders.net and with that we'll be right back Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Join host Sandy Giroux each week for Leadership and Life. This program illustrates different aspects of leadership and shows you how it's not just confined to the workplace or even our job duties. 
you'll hear more about the human side of leadership, which includes connecting on a non-work-related level. In fact, a lot of what happens on this level definitely affects how leaders are viewed as such. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. We all hear about information security, identity, and privacy threats. The more technology becomes part of our lives, with more data created to provide insights about our lives, the more concerned we need to be. That's why it's important to tune in to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Host Rebecca Harold is an internationally recognized expert in these areas. Rebecca and her guests will let you know how to keep your business and personal data safe. Listen live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Work-Life Confidential with host Ken Dolan Del Vecchio tackles issues that people just like you face every day. Workplace stress can make you sick. You may face toxic relationships at work, low or no job security, and these stresses may spill over into your home life. Speaking of home life, are you facing problems there? We'll help you sort it all out. Work-Life Confidential airs live Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm your host, Kimberly Lewis, and today we are talking with visionary expert Thomas Kulopoulos, and Thomas is the chair of the think tank innovation group, Delphi Group in Boston, and he's also the author of 11 books, and we're talking about his most recent book, Revealing the Invisible. So, um, Thomas, Tom, before we left... um, we mentioned a little bit about this um, cloud and clocks and uh, story, and I think that's kind of a fun one. Do you want to just tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because you write about that in your book. Absolutely, and it, it is fun, and it's one of those things. Once you once you hear the story, you will never look at the world in the same way again. Yeah. There was a, a a wonderful, brilliant philosopher of the 20th century has since passed away, Karl Popper. And, uh, and Carl came up with this in 1966, actually, he published a, a book about this. He came up with this wonderful framework for thinking about problems and problem solving. He said that some problems are clock problems and some problems are cloud problems. Now, what does that mean? A clock problem is a highly engineered problem. It's designed, it's well thought out, it's finite, it's formulaic. Uh, you can understand it, you can make sense of it. So if you take a clock, throw it against the wall and pick up the pieces, someone who understands how clocks work could put it back together again, could understand the mechanism because it was designed. There was a actual thought put into it. A cloud, however, doesn't have the benefit of being engineered. We don't truly understand how clouds behave. Empirically, we know that they do. We know how to predict probabilistically what will happen when we see certain cloud formations, but we can't predict it with 100% certainty. And, and Popper's point was, look, we're moving from an era of clock problems 
to an era of cloud problems. So we have to give up this notion that there is a finite solution to every cloud problem. There isn't. Clouds are emergent. They change over time. In the same way, the very complex problems like climate change or pandemics, uh, uh, large uh, economic uh, issues that we deal with globally, these aren't solvable they can be chipped away at. Uh, over time, we can make progress, but we will never cross the finish line. And I think it's a wonderful way to think about the value of AI. AI helps us specifically with those kinds of cloud problems. Cloud problems, you know, we built computers that can do that. We know how to do that. Uh, we're very adept at it. But we have to start switch, uh, switching our mode of thinking to look at the world more in terms of, of cloud problems, uncertainty, uh, and, and uh, problems that aren't easily solved and and that that's a great that was a gr- that's a great example and when you when you think about that and you bring that book back to what we started to talk about um, before the break about you know individual individualized experiences and personalization I mean these are these are things that this is you know predictive behavior and you're talking you in your book you talk about how personalization and individual experiences and predictive pay, pay behavior is so important for the future so can you talk a little bit about that yeah and we have to we have to change the way we think about about predicting kimberly because mm-hmm. you know what when when popper was talking about this 2 years after he wrote the book we put a man on the moon we put we put a right. couple of men on on the moon with apollo 11 um that was sort of the biggest clock problem ever. Uh, it was solvable. It was predictable. I mean, think of it this way. The, the, uh, the Apollo, the, the rocket ship and the moon were both traveling at four times the speed of a thirty-eight caliber bullet. So we had to predict with great precision where they would be 250,000 miles in outer space. But, but that's predicting in a very finite um, way. You can take a slide ruler or a calculator and you can, and you can work that out. Uh, Popper's point is that prediction going forward uh, is going to be constantly reevaluated and recalculated. We, we can't do it with the same sort of, of precision. So when we look at behavior, the reason Facebook and Google and Instagram and YouTube and Apple are capturing all of our behaviors is so that they're able to create a higher likelihood of predicting what you will do next. So take Amazon, for example. Amazon quite literally wants to be able to send you a package before you even order what's inside of it. So you'll come home one day. uh, You'll send your doorstep a package from Amazon. You'll say, that's funny. I didn't order anything. You will open up the package, and Amazon's hope is that you will see what's inside and say, oh, I absolutely needed this right now. Uh, Why didn't I think to order it? Now, that sounds creepy to us, right? But Look, let me ask you a question. Would you like to have a personal shopper that does all your shopping for you, that gives you back all that time that you spend doing doing that shopping? Of course, who, who wouldn't? So that's what we're moving towards is this predictive model where on a one-to-one basis, not as a mass market, because that's creepy when you treat me as, a, as part of a large demographic, but as an individual, you get me so well that you can actually give me back my time. You can, you can gift to me that time that I would otherwise spend uh, trying to figure out what I need and what I want. And again, we haven't experienced this, so it sounds like a threat more than it does a promise. But I think there's huge value in that, ultimately. But Tom, with that, and I'm thinking about this predictive behavior because because this this data is obviously coming from the touch points that I I do today. Right. You know, okay. So Facebook is taking that. Everybody's taking that, and um, and putting that together. And doesn't that kind of have like kind of like a little bit of a Big Brother scenario there? I mean, yeah, ab- um, absolutely. I, yeah. I think George George Orwell would 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 be you know doing pirouettes in his grave if if he, <laughs> if he knew what was going on right now. He was he was was so conservative with uh, with 1984 and he was he was obviously you know a few decades behind the curve uh, but we have not only do we have 
enormous amounts of data, uh, but what we have pales in comparison to what we will have in two years, four years, eight years. So when, when you think about this, the best way to have that conversation, I think, is to ask the question, so who owns the data? Who owns your digital self? And the answer today is, I don't own it. And I probably should. I, I think ultimately that's what we should be moving towards, ownership of my digital identity. Today, Facebook and, and, and Microsoft and Apple and all these players, Netflix, all own pieces of my digital self. Frankly, I don't want any one entity to own all of that. It should be mine. And, and if you think about this, again, going back to the three billion or so people who are disenfranchised, they have no identity, digital or otherwise. So we could be moving into an era where every human being has an immutable, indisputable identity, uh, and they should own that as they would own any other asset. I think that's a very important uh, piece of this value equation that we don't often think about. It will really change society, not just the economy, but the society, uh, and the value that we have as individuals can now be preserved in this digital form. That's huge. Mm-hmm. But aren't businesses today, Tom, thinking that they own it? So, I mean, Facebook and maybe if you uh, if you you look at everything um, with Cambridge Analytics and all this other things that happened, I mean, they they. The, all this information is is being seen today by some businesses as a business asset. Um, yes. Do you think do you think that's correct, or do you think this is going to be the asset of the future? Information is going to be the asset of the future. Um, it's kind of contradictory if I want to own my own digital self, but at the same time, Facebook owns everything. Yeah, we're at a, we're in a very peculiar and precarious point right now because you're right. I don't own my digital self. You you don't. No one does. It's owned by by vendors, uh, by technology mm-hmm. vendors. Mm-hmm. And frankly, these vendors want to own more and more of it. And and the more we allow them to own, the more the more they will. So when we look at uh, the role of government uh, and regulation uh, and legislation, and I think it does play a role here, by the way, because as with any asset, if you agree with what I just said, that this is an asset, then we had better put in place the mechanism by which to protect it, right? So mm-hmm. a, a great, a wonderful Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto, wrote a wonderful book called The Mystery of Capital. And in it, he says, basically, I'll sum the whole book up for you in, in a sentence, that the reason capitalist systems work in, in a free economy, in a democratic uh, uh, a nation, is because we have immutable and irrefutable rights to property ownership. I believe the same applies to your digital identity. Mm-hmm. So you're right, Kimberly. Today, I don't own that, and I should. I think we're very much uh, in a uh, in a very uncomfortable period of transition right now where we're trying to figure this out. But that should be the role of government and regulators is to create um, that, that right of ownership to, uh, to my digital self. I mean, imagine that today... I signed the terms of, of, uh, of agreement with, uh, with Facebook or with Apple or, or, or whomever. Uh, I don't know what their terms and conditions are. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. read the 18 to 50 of pages. Of, right? Who does? Well, yeah. what if I had my own terms of uh, my own TOC, my own terms of, and, and conditions um, that they had to sign? I mean, and that sounds absurd, but it's only absurd because we haven't yet done it. If this truly is an asset of value, then I should be negotiating uh, who it has value to and under what terms I will share it. And I think we're, we're definitely a good 20 years away from, from realizing that, that vision, but that is the direction we should be heading in. 
Mm-hmm. That that was a really good point. I, I really liked what you just said that I should be negotiating with Facebook if you want my data so that you can target then you know negotiate with me over the contract. That's super. I love that because actually you know sitting here in Europe, um, of course you know on May twenty fifth we just had GDPR. Right. And um, we're now um, actually I just came from a meeting yesterday on e privacy. And, um, you know, that's the GDPR plus. Okay. And, um, and uh, it's so difficult to understand. And and what I heard yesterday is we're probably looking at 2020 before they, the EU finishes their e-privacy legislation. Um, and, um, you know, it's just complicated. But so this this is also changing. Can you talk about how it's changing our ecosystems and everything yes. around us? Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, every so often uh, uh, a um, an idea, a concept comes along that really encapsulates so much of, of the change that's happening. And I think this notion of what's being called a digital ecosystem is a very important concept to understand, whether you're in business or, or not, even on a personal level, it's important to understand. So all a digital ecosystem is, at the end of the day, uh, is a collection of, of capabilities, business partners, organizations that all work together to produce something. The problem with our ecosystems today is that they're held together uh, by a lot of process and a lot of systems that have grown organically. They weren't built for a digital world. And if you look at most companies and ask people that work in these organizations, if you if you had a clean slate, would you design your process today exactly the way that it currently works? Their answer would be no. And the reason it's no is because it wasn't designed for the technologies that we have today. So this notion of a digital ecosystem uh, creates a higher level of efficiency and effectiveness in an organization because it now has built itself around digital technology. Now that all sounds kind of obtuse. So let me, let me give you a real example yeah. here that kind of nails it, okay? Uber created a digital ecosystem. Uh, they didn't incrementally change the way taxis worked or the way you know cab drivers drove. They, they changed the entire industry by creating a digital ecosystem. And and I think the threat to every organization is you will be, not by Uber, but by someone, you will be Uberized. Someone will will create a digital uh, twin of what you're already doing, and that digital twin will not have the friction, it will not have the the legacy, uh, it will not be encumbered by the legacy of all the processes that have grown organically around your ecosystem. And I think you have to be very careful of that because the biggest disruptor in my mind is going to be uh, how these digital ecosystems will change industrial era companies uh, and replace them in many cases with new digital companies that are built around digital technology. Mm-hmm. And when, when you think about that, Tom, I mean, th- then I always come back, I always come back to that question about the cart and the horse, okay? So with 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 these changes, do, do you think this tech this technology is driving these digital technology is driving this, or are needs driving this, or is it a combination of both? It, it's it's a wonderful dance between the two. I think, Kimberly. Mm-hmm. I think the technology changes our behavior, and our behavior then dictates the changes in technology. I, look, I'll ask you a simple question, and I know the answer for most people who are listening to this. Uh, when you woke up this morning, was the first thing you did before you got out of bed? to uh, check your cell phone for messages. Exactly. And 80% of people will say yes. The other 20%, I think half of them are lying anyway because they're too embarrassed (laughs) to admit it. Um, And and by the way, about 25 to 30% of us, depending on the demographic, actually sleep with our phones in the bed with us. I mean, Mm. so this is perverse behavior, but yet we do it 
we don't think twice about it. We feel we have to do it. Uh, it's not the technology that has caused that. It is behavioral change. But the behavioral change is now having implications on the technology. You don't want to sleep with your phone. You'd rather sleep with a device that you know is not going to take up a, a, a you know the pillow next to you. So we 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 dance with the technology. We change it through our behavior, and it changes our behaviors as well. Uh, it's it's symbiotic in many ways. Sometimes it feels dysfunctional because new behaviors. Uh, are difficult to adopt and to embrace, and we push back on it. But look, going back to an earlier point that, that you made, this is really important. Uh, you talked about privacy and Big Brother. There will always be bad actors, bad people mm. who try to do bad things with technology. Technology doesn't isn't good or bad. It just it's a tool. You can use a right. hammer uh, to drive a nail. You can use a hammer to break a window. Um, so we're not going to stop the bad guys from doing bad things. What we had better do is use this technology in a way that creates positive value, socially, economically, organizationally. If we do that, then we outweigh the bad stuff. And that's always been the, the formula with technology. Do more good stuff with it than you do bad stuff with it. And we can look at any technology and make the same argument. Right. And that brings us to what I want to talk about after the break is a little bit more on AI, um, because those are some of the, the the controversial discussions we have on it. You know, is it good? Is it bad? What can it do? What can it benefits? But we're going to take a, a quick break, Tom. And for our listeners, we're having a great discussion with Tom Kulopoulos, who is the bo- uh, chairman of the Boston-based global innovation think tank, Delhi Group. Delphi Group, excuse me, which was named as one of the fastest growing growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine. Now, Tom also has a new book on Amazon calling Revealing the Invisible. And you can also reach out to Tom on tkspeaks.com. And his social media handle is at tkspeaks. And you're listening to Kimberly Lewis on Voice America on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please reach out to me with questions and comments at leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. And Tom, when we come back, I want to take this a little bit further and talk a little bit more about AI and what that what's that going to mean to us in the future. Absolutely. So for, okay, great. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, then be sure to tune in to Ask the Coach with host Oliver Baisner. So your team and organization need to work more effectively, and it's taking its toll on you as a leader. Is your family and work-life balance out of whack? Now, get the answers you need from a panel of experts. No matter the challenge, you'll find the answers here. Ask the Coach airs live every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are more interested in learning about the business of IT, tune into This Week in IT with hosts Lang Maith and Andre Forte. Your hosts collectively have over 30 years of professional IT experience. Each week, their program showcases industry news and special guests taking a deeper look at new technologies, business contracting, security, new product demos, and business startups. Listen live for This Week in IT every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The world is changing. Our beliefs about leadership 
need to change with it. That's the conversation happening at We Lead Radio. On this show, we reveal the simple yet profound truths we have learned from horses that will prepare you to lead confidently in the direction of your future. Join June Gunter, Beth Hijack, Christine Erickson, and Morgan Reidenauer every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders, one of Voice America's business, fastest growing business programs and one of the best series for learning about global leadership and business issues. And today we are talking about the changing environment around us with expert Tom Kolopoulos. And Tom is the chairman of the Boston-based global innovation think tank Delphi Group, which was named as one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. magazine. So Tom, before, before we took the break, um, we we're talking about technology and, and the fact that there's always good and bad, okay? And um, we talked about these new ecosystems and the digitalization of ourselves. And I guess I want to ask you, uh, what role is AI going to play in this? First, let's just start generally because, you know, it's out there today and in, you know, around us, but it's just there's such a run in a race uh, for AI solutions. So what, how do you see this is going to influence going forward? And, and that's you know, such a, a wonderful and a, and a broad question, Kimberly, because AI seems to be everywhere in every conversation. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the industry or not. Everyone is talking about, about AI. But the best way to think about AI is in the same way we think about any other tool that humanity has created. It extends our reach. Uh, and it's a collaborator. We work with tools in collaboration. It, with AI specifically, it's an extension of our intelligence, not a replacement. And I want to be careful with this, and we can talk more about that, but it's an extension of our intelligence. And like every other tool that humanity has created, it, it simply extends our reach into the future so that we can deal with increasingly more complex problems and increasingly more ambitious goals. It is just a tool. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's a tool. So it's an extension of ourselves because we're actually the ones that are teaching these machines. Okay? For the time um, being, for the time being, we are. That, that, that will change as well. We can talk about some examples there. But for the time being, we're the teachers, yes. Yeah. And how, how do you see that changing? Uh, well, look, I'll, I'll give you a wonderful example. Not, not too long ago, uh, for the first time, uh, an AI system, a computer slash AI system, beat the uh, world's uh, uh, chess master, Lee Sedol, mm. uh, at Go, the game of Go. Now, is, Go is an intuitive game. There are, there are more versions of game on a 19 by 9 game board, more versions of, of the Go game uh, than there are atoms in the, in the visible universe. Um, so you, you can't compute Go. You have to play it in, in an intuitive way. Yet uh, Google's DeepMind uh, AlphaGo beat uh, the world's best Go player. Now here's where it gets really interesting and, and a bit scary. Uh, humans had to train AlphaGo and they trained it using millions of moves made by other human players of Go. 
Then they built another version of it called AlphaGo Zero. AlphaGo Zero was not trained. AlphaGo Zero learned by simply playing against AlphaGo. Well, do you want to guess uh, in a match between AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero, which one won? It was AlphaGo Zero, hands yeah. down. So AI is getting to the point where it can teach itself. What it lacks, however, and this is really important, uh, I can't stress it enough, what AI does not have is that fundamental asset that we have as human beings, which is curiosity. You have to mm-hmm. tell it what it's going to learn. It may learn itself, but you have to tell it what it's going to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I, I've heard, I've read about that, that uh, the Go example. And when you when you think about that, so so here are the here's this AI and here's the machine, and we talk about these ecosystems. And we talk about business and and what kind of impact is this going to have to have? Do you think on jobs and businesses in the future? I mean, how is that really going to change the way we do business? It will, AI will probably have the single greatest impact on uh, employment, on jobs, uh, on training, on education uh, that humanity has ever seen, much more so than the Industrial Revolution. But look, a couple of points here, and we can dig a bit deeper, but number one, the most important point is we've always had this fear, you know, the Luddites in the early mm-hmm. 1800s who took axes and sledgehammers to, to machinery, fear that machines would, would put them out of jobs. Well, guess what? They were right. But what we fail to realize is that we do redeploy people. We find other ways to apply human capital and human intellect. And usually there are more meaningful ways to apply human capital and human intellect than, than what, you know, what we're replacing. So there will be enormous disruption. My concern with AI, uh, to be totally blunt here, is that it will eliminate a lot of the entry-level positions that mm-hmm. kids coming out of school usually start their careers with. So we've got a lot of rethinking, retooling, and retraining that we have to do. But at the end of the day, Kimberly, humanity will be applying itself to, I think, more meaningful activities than, than what we have been. And that's always a good thing, and we've always figured that out. We've had a tough time looking into the future to figure out how we will, mm-hmm. but we've always figured it out. Mm-hmm. And when you when you talk about eliminating these uh, entry-level positions and you talk about changing some of the workforce um, – your your professor in uh, universities. Mm. Do you how do you think this is also going to change the education? What we're what we're teaching, you know, the the children yeah. today. Well, it's going to change. First, let's take K through twelve. Right, it's having a yeah. significant impact in K through twelve, and and partly that impact, and I've seen it firsthand with my own children is that there are more opportunities for them to learn when they are motivated to learn. So my son constantly is educating himself on YouTube uh, in a very positive way for things that he has interest in. So it does does provide uh, another way in which you can enhance learning. What I'm more interested in, however, is in creating a global workforce that has equal opportunity for education, both K through 12 and higher education, university level education. That's not the case today, right? University mm-hmm. level education is, is still sort of the holy grail, the prize for, for a lot of people in the globe. And for some, it's not even on their radar. It's, it's unachievable. So my hope is that a lot of what we'll be able to do over the course of the next 10 to 20 years is to deliver online the same sort of learning experiences that we today deliver in classrooms. That in and of itself will have enormous impact. And that, by the way, ties directly into this conversation about AI because if AI eliminates a lot of the administrative work, then we have to create a workforce that is much more skilled intellectually 
to be able mm-hmm. to deal with that higher order of work that humanity will be called to uh, to get involved in. So I think these are these are very important trends. They be, they happen sometimes separately when we talk about them, but they're very very connected. Education prepares us for the AI era uh, in many ways. It creates the skills that will be necessary for us to survive. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any challenges with that? Because, um, I mean, we know, and, and you wrote the book, uh, Generation Z, um, and and we, we, we see the behaviors, of course, in the Generation Z are quite different than, than my generation. And um, do you think there's any challenges? Do you think with these changes, um, we're losing some of the human touch, um, some of the communication ability? Well, you know what? I'm going to take you back a few thousand years. Socrates had the same argument, but his his argument was that writing, the written word, would destroy uh, oral tradition. And you know what? To some degree, he was right. The written word does uh, preserve things, uh, gives us an extension to our memory. He was afraid that we would we would lose our ability to remember when we wrote things mm-hmm. down. So can you imagine a great philosopher you know, being opposed to writing down philosophical thoughts? <laughs> yeah. That seems patently mm-hmm. ridiculous. You know, thank God we had Plato um, to actually record <laughs> some of this stuff. So, so look, this is not a new argument. You know, we constantly mm-hmm. fear that technology will somehow dehumanize us. The most wonderful comment I heard on this came from someone deeply involved in AI about a week or so ago. We were having a conversation, and he said, you know what? I found that AI makes us better human beings. What a wonderful way to think about it. AI actually challenges us. It, 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 uh, it holds us to a higher standard in, in many ways. And maybe we're fearful of that. Maybe we're fearful of the fact that humanity cannot up its game. I'm not. I believe we can. Mm-hmm. I believe we have historically. Look, back in 1800, would you believe that, that back then, 80 plus percent of the world's population was involved in agriculture? In the U.S., it was about 40 percent. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, we're 2% in the U.S., but yet we're feeding 7 billion people. So we figure this out. You know, humanity's mm-hmm. calling is not to be an administrator. Humanity's calling is not to till the soil. Humanity's calling is much greater than that. And we've been moving in that direction. We don't want to talk about that sometimes because it gets a bit too philosophical. But that is what we've been doing as a species. So why not continue that journey? And and, and that's a really good point because when I think about AI, um, it, it it makes us more aware of the ethics and it makes us more think about some of the things maybe we don't think about all the time. Yes. So I, I think you have a very good point there. Um, so Tom, we're getting towards the end of our show. So I'd like, I'd like to try to wrap up with two questions because we have a lot of business leaders out there listening. And um, if you had one or two um, uh, I hate to use the word prediction because we said mm. we just really can't predict, okay, or or tips uh, on how we can, I want to say, encompass a, a, this new world. What would the for the business leaders be be your tip on how to really encompass and 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 use what's this change to our it's- advantage? Pretty, pretty simple, Kimberly. For business leaders, experiment relentlessly. Set aside budget and resources for AI and behavioral business models. Um, set the objective of learning, because right now we're all learning uh, what the role and the application of, of AI will be. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, this is the greatest arms race ever for the survival of business. Uh, and take my Uber example earlier. If you don't want to be Uberized, uh, then you had better start experimenting relentlessly to figure out how this will impact your industry and your company because it most definitely will. We just don't know exactly how yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about for the rest of us 
uh, mortals here, okay, you know, that <laughs> just the consumers and the rest of us out here, because it, it's kind of scary, all these changes. And and as I said in the introduction, um, until I read your book, I wasn't even thinking about it, you know, uh, my digital stuff. What, what would be your tips um, for us? Well, but that was the point of the book, Kimberly, was yeah. to get us to start thinking. I think we all yeah. too often we've had conversations around the apocalyptic view. We become part of the Borg or AI becomes our overlord. And, and while all this plays well to Hollywood and it's fun to, to think about the apocalypse, I think humanity has always felt it's, you know, a few decades short of the apocalypse. The re- reality is it never has happened. You know, we, we fear things that ultimately bring us much more value than they do risk. Not that they don't bring risk. They do but they bring more value than they bring risk. Uh, you know, nuclear technology, the splitting of the atom is a great example here. We were terrified of that. We should have been because nuclear power is devastating. Yet it has saved countless more lives through nuclear medicine than we ever could have tallied. So, you know, we have to look at this on balance. So my advice to individuals uh, is that the fear, the discomfort, the anxiety that you feel is real, and you should feel it. We're, we're, you know, change does not come without that price. Um, but look to your kids and how they play to see how we will work. Look at how they deal with that discomfort and that anxiety. Take cues from them and how to navigate the digital future. Uh, they understand the value proposition in ways that, that we don't. So let them be sort of your reverse mentors, right? Learn from them. Uh, and most of all, don't fall into this, this black hole of apocalyptic thinking, gloom and doom. Instead, focus on how we can move the social conversation towards the positive, because it's the net positive that always gives us the benefit of technology. No technology is without risk. So move towards that net positive. Keep an open mind, uh, and, uh, and you'd be amazed. Uh, one day you'll look back and say, how did I ever live without AI? <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. And that's a great, great note to end on. And for our listeners, we have been talking to Tom Kulopoulos, uh, Kalopoulos, as you say in America. Indeed, okay. That's right. <laughs> okay. And, um, and I'll spell that for you. That is uh, K-O-U-L-O-P-O-U-L-O-S. And he is the chairman of the Boston-based global innovation think tank, Delphi Group, which was named as one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. by Inc. Magazine. Now, he's also an author of 11 books. Um, and I definitely re- I've read uh, three of them, uh, Tom, and I definitely recommend my two favorite is the new one, Revealing the Invisible, that is now on Amazon. And uh, my second favorite was the Generation Z effect that you did with Dan Kelson. Okay. And you can reach you can reach Tom at tkspeaks.com or uh, his social media handle is at tkspeaks. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. That was great. And I recommend our listeners get onto Amazon, get that book, because it's, it's really a great read and it makes you think, okay, and especially for our leaders. So thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Kimberly. And uh, once again, I'm your host, Kimberly Lewis. We have a range of great guests on this series, and I'm happy to come join you at your event and talk to you about my global experiences. You can reach me on Leadership Beyond Borders on our program, download it from iTunes. And this program is brought to you by the Women's Leadership Academy 2020. In Europe, we provide leadership training, systemic team coaching, motivational speaking, and leadership training for women, getting ready for the legislation in Europe 2020 for gender diversity on boards. Um, We also 
do a lot of consulting and reach out to me at leadershipbeyondborders at Gmail. And I would like to also bring your attention to CINDA, which is the Search and Information Industry Association in Europe, who talks about things such as AI and technology, like we talked about today. And we have our local search summit in Dubrovnik, October 14th through 16th this year. So try to join us then. And with that, then tune in to us next week. Don't forget to download us. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.